Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump into today's conversation. My guest today is Chris Luth. Chris is from and lives in the Netherlands, and his passion is how we think, especially through creative and self-reflective processes. He lives his passion by coaching and facilitating workshops on vision, strategy, and organizational development with local communities, world-class universities, and Fortune 500 companies. Chris studied business administration, architecture, and philosophy. After working as an architect, he began organizing and facilitating workshops and debates in four continents as a cultural curator. He continues to teach at multiple architecture schools. Chris co-founded the Change Lab Global Community of Practitioners, Educators, and Experts in 2020 by organizing and facilitating key events. And as candidate member of European Parliament, he helped build Volt Europa to become the pan-European political party and movement it is today. Chris and I met a few months ago through mutual work opportunities. Before we began recording this podcast conversation, I asked Chris if he had any specific stories to share, and he said he just wanted to see where the conversation took us. Structured emergence is the term we use for this, and I learned this term from my guest Miranda Holder on episode 38. So in structured emergence, we have a bit of structure, and then we just see what emerges. So this is what our conversation is. It is an exploration. Chris also added that he hoped he would not bore himself. So I check in with Chris at the end of our conversation and spoiler alert, he did not bore himself in the end. So success. Thank you, Chris, for sharing these pieces of your journey, some of the stories that shape who you are and what you offer others in your work and life and your wise perspectives on the world. Chris, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. This is one of those conversations that I I feel really excited about because we met fairly recently uh, in the last couple of months virtually and then got to meet in person just a few weeks ago when we had a work project in Amsterdam. And I can't even remember how we started talking about the podcast. And I was like, hey, you want to be on the podcast? And you're like, sure. And so... I would love, as we get started, for you to share your story of when the podcast came up and what you thought and what resonated for you when I tossed out the invitation. Nice question. Uh, So, excuse me. Um, I think we met uh, on uh, online on New Year's drinks uh, or New Year's event with our sort of uh, the company we work with. And I think uh, you mentioned that you had a podcast or even two, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, there was not a lot of time to dive into it, but actually that triggered me because a friend of mine, um, uh, who's also a colleague of ours, but I don't know if you've met her, um, she actually asked me a really interesting question about a year ago in March, uh, where are you going to start telling your story, she asked me, and that's deeply resonated within me. And the first idea I got was actually to... um, started YouTube channels because I could imagine myself speaking in front of a camera in a way. uh, I imagine it to be wonderful and very uncomfortable at the same time, kind of, uh, both simultaneously. Um, 
but somehow I haven't gotten around to that. I've, I've, I think I've taken a lot of steps in the last 12 months, but not that one yet. And then, uh, so I think I brought it up when we were both in Amsterdam a few weeks ago because I remembered it. Yeah. And here we are on the podcast. Indeed. So yeah, um, uh, maybe this will help me as well. Uh, like uh, make, make a little step in my life. Yeah. Cool. So as we jump in, Chris, I start off by asking my guests about this idea of making life less difficult. So the podcast and the work I do comes from a quote by Mary Ann Evans that is, what do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? And I would love to hear from you. What what do you hear when you say that? What does that mean to you? Well, I suppose multiple things. Um, first of all, I, I prefer positive framing. Uh, how would you like sort of to make life easier for others? For some reason, that sounds nicer to me. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, that's more the way, it aligns more with the way I think. But in a way, it's the same question virtually. So it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about it for a few days now. I suppose, I suppose I, for a long time, I used to think I was kind of selfish, but I realized I'm not or not only selfish and that I actually like to help other people and, um, and that it can give me great pleasure. Um, so maybe that's the first start of answering the question. Um, and that I think a lot of work I do actually involves helping people. So I, I teach, I coach, I facilitate workshops, I design workshops. I moderate public events, well, that a little bit less but as perhaps, but in a lot of cases, I actively try out to help people making explicit what they're dealing with, which question they have, which problem they have, and then try to help them find openings in towards sort of a, what I would call a solution direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when that I succeed in that, I uh, feel great. <laughs> it really uh, gives me a good feeling. Um yeah, let me let that be a start of answering. When was that first moment that you remember having the awareness and the realization that you do like helping people? Hmm. Well, I suppose it was kind of implicitly I was aware of it at some young age. Like remember my father drilling uh, a hole in the wall with a with a drill and uh, wanting to help him, but he would never allow me to, which frustrated me a lot. So. Um, it's the worst thing if your parents say, no, you cannot help. Or I wanted to help my mother in the kitchen. No, get out of the kitchen. This is my space. <laughs> but she wouldn't say it like that, but that would, it would boil down to that, basically. So I remember a frustration of not being able to helping people when I wanted to help them. And uh, I suppose the sort of being turned out, being turned down for my help was it could be actually a painful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose there's, oh, there's so many thoughts that come to mind now, but... <laughs> uh, um i like on a very personal level when you know, when i when i would like a person romantically i also felt like i wanted to help them so being turned down was not only being turned down romantically but also f- my help or my being there mm. uh, but i think only in recent years it became more clear to me about five years ago that i really like facilitating sessions i mean i started doing so over 10 years ago but sort of five years ago there was a bit of a turning point and uh and then uh now it's it's really part of my self-knowledge. What is it about the facilitation when you're with a group and you're creating, uh, you're creating an environment and facilitating discussion, conversation? What is it about that experience that you enjoy? Well, you you take people on a journey to places they've not gone to before. Uh, So you bring 
various people's thoughts together in a way that they can be compared and related, in, as opposed to a way that they're just completely discrete from each other. And from there on, uh, you find sort of new, new insights, new openings, new possible futures. And I think, you know, new possibilities are always like, very exciting to me. And you see people change their behavior, their posture, their facial expression, their, their energy levels, and they come out often with um, making plans, mm. uh, which is super exciting to see that happening and being, you know, facilitating that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because when you see the behavior change and you see people walking away from a session with plans in place, like that's tangible change and, yep. and creativity and innovation. And that is facilitated by you. Yeah, no, I love it. And and in Holland, there is uh, the Netherlands where I live. There is a, well, I suppose in many countries, there, there is a um, skepticism against talking. And, and the word used for that skepticism is actually dicking like penising that's that's the dutch sort of negative word for talking which basically suggests that it's just hot air you know and nothing nothing will come from it and and some people associate that with discussion debate facilitating workshops and uh, i find i i'm i'm extremely pragmatic like even though talking is the medium we use i find that it's very concrete yeah it is interesting that that is kind of built in culturally. Um, I think it's it's interesting to consider the different places that I've lived. And having lived in the Netherlands, it doesn't surprise me. I didn't come across the term dicking when I was there, but it doesn't surprise me that that's part of the Dutch culture. And it is interesting to step back from that and realize there is some talking that is just hot air. Right. And then there is there can be such um, creativity and, and truly we can create things We're, our words can be generative. They can truly create ideas, experiences, things we we just start talking about something. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, I hadn't thought about that before. Like, OK, your friend saying, when are you going to start telling your story? And here we are a little over a year later, and you're on the podcast to share your pieces of your story and see where it goes. Indeed. No, uh, speaking, talking, words, language can have very very uh, concrete actions as a result and uh, very concrete consequences. It, it also can have none. <laughs> uh, <True>. so it, <laughs> it also can deteriorate things, but uh, no, it, uh, yeah, I love, uh, I love ideas for that reason because ideas can change the world. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to come back to the first comment that you shared in response to make life less difficult, because I find this really interesting and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I have a, a number of people who respond to the idea of make life less difficult of, okay, well, let's make it easier. And for me, there's something different about making life easier mm -hmm. and making life less difficult. Mm -hmm. And for me, like there's times in life that are really hard. I've been through significant loss, um, various things that there's nothing that can make that time easier. And yet I've experienced having people in my life, um, things that I can choose that, that can make it less difficult. And I would just love to hear what, what are your thoughts on that as we kind of tease out that difference of 
easier versus less difficult. You're absolutely right, Lisa. And um, life can be very difficult. And uh, for some people, it can be difficult all the time. And I've had struggle in my life for sure. I suppose maybe part of me doesn't want to be reminded of that too often. Um, um, And and you're right that actually when you say, let's make life easier, it sounds more like a little trick or a hack or an app or to download or, uh, you know, life hacks on YouTube or something like that. And how to cook uh, peas in in two minutes or something. I don't know. So. you have a point there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also a fair point that, I mean, sometimes it's not a great thing or a pleasant reminder to, to be reminded of, of those difficult times. And yet, I mean, my part of my motivation in having this podcast and asking people to come and share their stories is that I believe we connect as humans through our stories and often through our pain points And so sharing the difficult times, sharing how we got through those difficult times can resonate with other people. And I have really appreciated hearing from other people, knowing I'm not alone. I'm not the only one going through this difficult time. And so that's the, I think that's the trick of being willing to go there. And also it it can be, it can be helping and making life less difficult for others. And it also can be a difficult process for, for us. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that is that is um, exactly the reason why I started writing a novel some years ago. And actually, that's also the reason why, uh, in, in part, why I want to share, have this uh, YouTube channel, at least. I love the idea of sharing my own stories of, inside of insights I've gained, uh, difficulties I've overcome, to uh, make other people feel they're not alone. And also, maybe they can also, as a bonus, make use of my insights. Um, there's a lot of um, news out there in the media or in conversations with people that makes me feel lonely because a lot of the people things uh, things people say or what what the media says uh, doesn't resonate at all with me and I just feel different a lot and um, so yeah when you hear somebody speaking something saying something authentic and truthful chances are it will resonate because in spite of all our differences, our similarities are much greater anyway. Um, so the more, and I found this paradox, which I found interesting, which for me is a starting point of creative writing, I suppose, is that, and it sounds, maybe it's a cliche. Some people have said it before. Some people don't understand it. For me, it makes a lot of sense. The more specific and personal, the more universal. Wow. Yes. That is beautiful. I, it just makes so much sense to me. And the more generic the 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 more cliche the less the less real the less universal so it's it's dip, definitely a paradox but, I, but it, yeah i had not heard that paradox before but it it resonates deeply the more specific and personal the more universal i don't know who said it first or maybe nobody said it first maybe i even thought it up myself and 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 found out i was not the first to think it up i don't know but we can, somehow we can credit you uh, i will credit you you were the first person i heard it from so i can quote you <laughs> well then we can end this conversation now i'm fully satisfied <laughs> perfect Thank you so much for joining me on the Make Life Less Difficult podcast, Chris. This has been the easiest conversation yet. <laughs> That's. I'm sorry to disappoint you there if it's easy. <laughs> yes, you have made this easy. <laughs> I could have made it something less difficult. Then, then, I'll, then, I'll, then I'll stay. Yeah. <laughs> so I would love to 
I'd love to invite you to jump into some of your stories and and I'll ask you this question and see where it, it leads you. When you think about a time where you looked around and thought, oh wow, life is life is hard, harder than I thought it was gonna be. What when when was that? What story comes up for you? <clears throat> I suppose there have been many episodes which were difficult. Hmm. Yeah, there's multiple things going on in my mind now. I suppose the there was a moment in my life when it became most explicit, which was uh, when my mother was uh, in a dr- an anti-drug uh, clinic. She was an alcoholic, and um, and she um, had to f- formulate sort of learning points or working points. Uh, uh, it was formulated in Dutch uh, to improve her life, and and for some reason I thought, hey, that's a good idea, and I started to formulating them for myself, and. Um, and I felt, I think, uh, I was things were not going well at school in that year. Um, uh, I felt socially a bit isolated at school at that that year. I I wasn't sitting next to my best friend anymore because for some reason we were been placed in different classes. And I tried to protest that, but with no avail. Um, I How think old those, were you at this time, Chris? Around sixteen. Okay. Um, or maybe it was when my mother just left the clinic. I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I kind of doubled the year in high school. It could have been that year or the year after that, that period roughly. And I think maybe the third one was tennis. I used to play tennis two hours a day. And then in that same period was, was unfortunate. I had a, a knee injury and I couldn't play tennis anymore. And, um, so I had a lot of energy, which I couldn't, uh, use, uh, deploy. And, um, yeah, I think that's when I, yeah, I started to formulate like an action plan for myself, um, Paradoxically, um, I don't know if it worked or not. I, I think it perhaps made me less happy, actually. <laughs> um, what, what elements of the action plan do you re- remember and uh, which what you're willing to share? Well, yeah, so sort of uh, become better at tennis, become better at school, become better socially, kind of that, that okay. those are the th- things. And yeah, I don't know really if it helped. I, I think perhaps it's somehow created the idea that I was not not good enough as I was or uh, I mean it's very uh, empowering to think of that you have the, the the agency the capability to change your life that is a that gives a lot of hope so in that sense it probably helped me a lot perhaps it was also just a way to avoid the pain the loneliness the disappointment the sadness with the story of my mother and then my own sort of little loss of not being able to play tennis which was nothing compared to that but yeah, um, I could not, until that moment, I had been able to imagine that I was from a happy family. Even I knew I wasn't, but I still could somehow convince myself I was because there were happy moments. Yeah. But at that point, I couldn't anymore. And I had to kind of reconstruct a self-image, an image of life and a set of expectations. And it was kind of dark. And I suppose I, 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 there's a Dutch word sort of for this, a flight forwards. So kind of to, instead of kind of staying in the moment or going backwards is, is, is kind of go on the offense and, and make life better mm. and improve as a way to kind of avoid uh, the difficulties in the here and now and in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a, that's a tumultuous time in life anyway, the teenage years and figuring out, you know, who we are as individuals and then to add in the complexity of your mom being in treatment, um, you then having tennis 
removed from your life, which it sounds like was really meaningful and something you really wanted to pursue. It just really adds to the complexity. I lost my right hand in a way. Mm. A tennis racket. Yeah. Uh, which was a way to escape the house, vent my frustrations by hitting the ball very hard, um, being outside, yeah, forgetting about all these difficult. I could just focus only on one thing, tennis. It was a great escape and a healthy one, mm-hmm. and I didn't have that anymore. Um, yeah, it was an unfortunate period, a coincidence, yeah. What or who helped, helped you get through that time? Hmm. Well, good question. I mean, my there was a, a form of stability in the home. Uh, there was it was always clean. There was generally always sort of healthy food. Uh, my parents were there in the material sense, in a material way. Uh, I mean, I knew they loved me, but they weren't always able to give their love to me in that moment. And there was a lot of tension in the house. Everyone was fighting with everyone apart from me. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, uh, there were it, life was good enough to continue. But it wasn't uh, much fun. But anyway, when you're 16, there's always moments of fun you have. Mm. Out of everything. Uh, so it's not dark all the time. And there's so much to look forward to when you're 16. You're growing physically, intellectually, uh, romantically. The world is expanding. So there's this, uh, this innate uh, optimism. And um, I don't know. I just came up with a sort of an action plan and... <clears throat> Again, I don't know if this helped, but this is this was my way of dealing with it. I um, I started what I called uh, doing Oprah Winfrey, which is uh, that I I organized, I orchestrated conversations at the home because everyone was quite aggressively criticizing each other, apart from me, and it felt like so. Well, then I'm the one who can save the family because I'm not arguing with anyone. So what I would do, I would put them in the living room across the the coffee table and and let them say things to each other, what they wanted to say, and then translate that in a in what I now know to be a non-violent, sort of non-aggressive uh, uh, language. Wow. And hoping that would help, because I believed that there was a content core to their message, which was valuable, and that just the way of communicating it was was a negative. That's, that's, that was my belief. So I tried it for, I don't know how long, multiple times, maybe during six months or a year. Uh, I have no idea how often I did it. I remember sitting, seeing myself there once or twice or three times. So, yeah, that's, um, but at some moment I stopped because I felt it wasn't really making a difference. And I came to the conclusion that they didn't want to have a concrete solution. They actually wanted just to vent their aggression. Mm. That was uh, one of the most painful moments in my life when I, I think it was around New Year. I was 17, I think, and I kind of had to come to the conclusion they don't want to be saved. They just want to mm. be angry at each other and I should move on. And um, uh, that was uh, and that was the, one of the worst years of my life when I concluded that because then there was not the hope anymore that I could still salvage this, this family which somehow had happy moments in it. And um, yeah, that was very disappointing. It's it's fascinating to see how you lived into that desire to help people as a teenager Mm -hmm. and had this idea to play Oprah Winfrey for your family and try to bridge the gaps, try to create connection. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you had a wisdom that was 
perhaps far beyond your 16 or 17 years to be able to take them to hear the message that someone is saying when they're angry and then hear more of like the the message behind that and then translate it it there's a lot of wisdom there chris well thank you um to me it just somehow seemed obvious um Mm -hmm. like somebody has to do this and if they're not doing it then i'm gonna do it it it, i don't really remember thinking about it very much it just seemed i think opera winfrey was on tv so it was known i seen she didn't actually do that i think she did different things but in a way this was my interpretation of her um maybe sometimes she did but she did have some confrontations i suppose between angry spouses or something but um yeah i don't know maybe you're right maybe i did have some wisdom i i um yeah, but I don't think it worked. And then that was very painful. <laughs> Incredibly painful. And and yet I would I would say, I mean, as the outside listener right now, I would say the fact that it didn't work, quote unquote, doesn't take away from the wisdom that you had. The I mean, it's very impressive that you as a teenager just sort of had this in you, had this idea. I in contrast, when I think about my own teenage years, if there was conflict, I was kind of taught and really, um, really um, focused more on just um, putting things under the rug, right? Like we don't, we don't explore when people are angry. We just try to appease and calm them down and say whatever it takes to Mm. pretend that there's no disagreement. So I see it as incredible wisdom and the way that they responded to me doesn't doesn't negate or take away any of of the wisdom that you had. Well, that's very nice of you to say, it, and I'll take that. Um, the thing is, I think I felt safe. You know, I my parents had sometimes hit me and things like that when I was a child. But by the time I was about eleven, I was stronger than my father, and um, they both stopped uh, or had already stopped by that time. So I didn't feel unsafe anymore. And <laughs> uh, I, I knew they always loved me. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, I think they were just, uh, off track sometimes and, uh, couldn't handle themselves as opposed to that. I wasn't handling myself. I think they couldn't handle themselves. So I, 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 and I, and I saw the, you know, their pain and their weakness and their incompetence. And, um, I think from an early age, and I suppose finally I felt like I could actually help in, and not get kicked out of the kitchen anymore. And I was taken seriously in a way, but I don't think I didn't see any change or it, it didn't inspire them to do the same thing and become less aggressive and hostile in their communication. So, yeah, I I, I sometimes uh, said in that time or when I was in my 20s, uh, my parents were my worst failure. Aw. Well, and, and what comes to mind for me as I'm listening to you is like you as a teenager stepped into the role of the adult for sure yeah Yeah. which is something you don't really want any teenager to do um because uh, you know I could have had a lot more fun and and mindless fun and what what supposedly teenager dumb is about um Although I don't think it's all fun, and uh, you you probably neither. Hence, this the title of this podcast. But uh, um, yeah, yeah. And and um, the thing is, I don't think I'm special in any way. That I think you know, in a country of 17 million people, I'm sure there's a hundred thousand who grew up in similar circumstances as I did. <clears throat> so that that realization 
makes my individual story already something more of a collective story, actually. Yeah, and back to that universal aspect of our stories. And, and I would be curious to know how many who grew up in similar households took on the role of Oprah Winfrey, because <laughs> that might be more rare <laughs> than, than you realize. My mother was an alcoholic and I learned when I was 14 and I think when I was 15 to 16, she was in a clinic for about 10 months and there she learned to stand up for herself and and then that resulted in a lot of discussions and arguments and, and also some fights, uh, verbally mainly, but um, now I lost track of what I was going to say. Yeah, I remember. So around that time when I was 15, 16, 15 probably, I started to have alcohol for the first time in my life because we would start to go out. And I remember thinking, will I just, is it better to be a teetotaler and not drink alcohol ever because of my mother? And her father actually was an alcoholic as well. And then I thought, no, that doesn't really make any sense, uh, uh, nor does it make sense to become an alcoholic myself. Why would I do either? I'm just going to drink alcohol the way I want to. Uh, and I'll stop when I've had enough. And um, that always made a lot of sense to me. So, but I, I knew there, there was a possibility to kind of uh, escape into alcohol um, that some people might have, a road some people might have taken. And I always thought that on the short term, that might be easier, but on the long term, it's not going to be easier. And I knew why, because I saw my mother and I knew her father had been an alcoholic. So this is a multi-generational problem then. So uh, it, it even extends beyond your own lifetime. So it was very clear to me that was not a, a desirable road to take. So um, I suppose the lessons were right in front of me. I mean, perhaps they're always right in front of us, but for me, they were just, I could not ignore them. Well, it sounds like the way that your mind is wired is towards goals and mm -hmm. setting intentions and yeah. and then following through Progress. on those. Progress, yeah. Yeah, I, I once there was once was an open call. I now remember for what's called Philosophy magazine in the Netherlands, which is kind of a mid or lowbrow, let's say, philosophy magazine, mm -hmm. uh, uh, explaining it to the larger audiences, some aspects of it. And uh, <clears throat> I bought a magazine, I don't know, 15 years ago, and there was an open call for an article, are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? And I was very excited to write, a, I don't know, a 300, 400 word text about it. And mine was selected. And uh, there was even like a photographer sent to me and took some photos and he, he made me. So I had categorized myself as a pessimist but in a very paradoxical way. So I think it was something like, I started with all my life of being an optimist uh, because, uh, oh no, it started with something like, I think I started my life as a pessimist because things were really nice and then so they could only deteriorate. But at some point things did actually deteriorate. So I had to become an optimist because I could not live like that. And finally, they're not, they're, they're okay again now. So now I can settle back into being a pessimist. I mean, that, that was story. So, it, it, I made uh, optimism and pessimism not part of an intrinsic aspect of your nature, but a, a contextual uh, phenomenon. Anyway, so I, that's what they liked. They chose me. And the photographer chose to put me in a piece, field of grass with a tree behind me and a very thick, heavy, dark branch just above my head. So he, oh, wow. he manipulated the image to make it look like this weight above me. But 
I think that was understandable but unjustified because for me, pessimism in a way was was an optimistic state in the way I formulated there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that, that it, it's kind of a play with words there. I think yeah. uh, I'm very much an optimist, and 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 I was I very much believe in progress. And progress is is not just something to work on, but it's it's you know I'm not a religious person, but I need to believe things can be better, or at least I can work on things to improve. That I mean, it gives meaning to my life. Yeah. How has that impacted you? I mean, you've been reflecting back on your younger years, your teenage years. Um, as you look back on your life and you see yourself move into adulthood, how how has that influenced you moving forward in your life? You mean the the, the optimism or the progression, the belief in pro- progress, or the, the belief in progress that there's something better, the optimism? Well. Good question. Um, I have changed studies multiple times. Um, I've started again. I've reinvented myself in my career multiple times. And uh, I've broken up relationships with people I loved. Um, So I think, and you could argue this both ways. You could say the the discontinuity is a bad thing. And by now I would have uh, had a house and a marriage and children perhaps, which I don't. Um, um, but there, I always felt, no, there's more in life. I'm not going to settle for this, what I have now. And, and it has to be more. So you could, you could argue it gave me the courage to start anew. You could also argue it gave me the, uh, an overly critical view of things as they are. Um, who knows? I mean, I would, I would go for the first option because that's the choices I made. But uh, I guess you could argue the other way around as well. It, it's interesting to look at things from both angles. And I think it's, again, I mean, there's there's um, self-awareness, there's wisdom in, in what I hear you sharing, because it's not always easy to look at ourselves and say, well, I mean, it could be seen this way or it could be seen this way. And, and of course I can tell the story the way I want it because it's my life. And I made these decisions because I want progress, but for you to be able to say, or, I mean, I can see how it's valid of saying, you know, this other way of, you know, dissatisfaction and and whatever. So I think it's, I think it's a valuable skill to develop in life. If we don't naturally have that ability. I see two aspects to this. One is that I believe it's very useful um, to have uh, um, a whole, let's say, specter of certainty in the knowledge we have. Some things are absolutely sure. Some things are totally speculative, and there's a lot in between. And being aware of the certainty we can have, I think, um, may allows us to make better decisions, take better decisions. And uh, certainly not just black and white, um, for one. And secondly... I was speaking with a friend last night and I came up with this idea. I, th- I once heard somebody say or was written that I think something like intelligence or maturity is the possibility to hold two contradictory opinions or ideas in one's mind without going crazy. Um, and um, I think life is a lot like that. There are a lot of paradoxes and contradictions and we cannot unpack them all. Life is too short for that. And um, our science is not far enough developed or, or our own Personal subjective experiences are not developed far enough. So I think there's a lot of that. And, and sometimes it can be uncomfortable because we we like the comfort of certainty. Yeah. Um, but if we can give up 
and sort of lean into the discomfort of the uncertainty, I think it has a lot to offer us or the less certainty, let's say. When you say that, I'm I'm really intrigued to hear what do you feel uncertainty has to offer us when we're willing to open ourselves up to it? Well, we can continuously or we can revisit earlier decisions. We can continuously, if we want, reflect on how we see ourselves, how we see life, how we see society, how we see you know politics, friendships, love, whatever it is. Um, I remember something strange happening around that same age of 16. Suddenly I remember. I remember kids around me suddenly became really different in high school. Kids who had been open about their insecurities and uh, suddenly became like overly secure of everything in, in, in ridiculous ways in my mind. I remember I... I smoked once in a while and then I would stop and I would smoke again, which people found very weird because either you smoke or you don't smoke. And then I remember the smokers, they would all have their own packet like brand of cigarettes. And I always wondered why, because they would never change, but I would always change. Like every time I bought a packet, I would buy a different one because then I thought I could compare them and they thought it was really weird. And then I was like, but how do you know that this is the one you like most? Because they were defending their brand. They were saying, no, my brand is better than yours. And and they never had any answer to that. It was just like, yeah, I just started with this brand or something like that. And I thought it was bizarre. Um, and it made me even feel alienated from them. Like, how can they think like this? I just didn't get it. Uh, and I still actually don't get it. I mean, I can only speculate about their motives. I, I thought there was a lot of strange things happening then. And Perhaps, you know, they want they felt so insecure about life that they wanted something to hold on to. I don't know. But for me, it felt like the, the solution is worse than the problem. Because people would start saying things also around me like, yeah, I know this, this friend of mine. We know each other through and through. Nothing they say will ever be able to surprise me. And I was like, how do you know? How can you look 50 years into the future? Like, for me, that felt suffocating. But somehow they were proud they were boasting about it so yeah i think i've always been surprised about uh, there's many things but I, I think it's a very good weapon against uh hardship so for example a number of years ago during i think it was king's day in the netherlands some person with a car drove into a crowd and i think maybe killed a few people or at least severely injured them and why well i suppose this was an angry confused person um and as a result, I think 10,000 people walked into a march with candles and say this can, should never happen again. And the Netherlands has lost its, it's lost its, what's the word they use? Innocence and stuff. Mm. For me, that, that's, that's uh, kind of shocking that people would say that. I mean, we've had colonies, Indonesia, war, you know, we've Second World War and all the things that happen up till this day, you know, in international trade and 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 uh, the exploitation of child labor in the Congo or wherever, um, how can you think like that? I always thought, and and you know, people are die. People, I don't want to be sound dark, but in the Netherlands, I read I think 10, 15 years ago that every year, more than fifty children were like killed by their parents by violence. Wow. I, I don't think in Holland is any different from any other country in the world, perhaps even better, you know, but this is a thing that happens. And I think if you're aware of all these gradients in life, then you don't get shocked anymore by sudden, a sudden surprising fact. And 
So when these people are walking in the, in this in this parade of ten thousand candles, at least that's how I recall it. In a way, I envy them because they could live in a world they thought was peaceful and 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 uh, moral and just, which is a luxury I've not had since I was very young. But I would also not really want to change with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So very long answer to your question, but I think it gives a more balanced view of life, perhaps. Yeah. No, it's so interesting the way, I mean, essentially our, our brain makes up these stories to kind of make us feel good about things. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the history of the Netherlands and like there's not innocence there. I mean, we're going through it in, you know, the United States in a lot of ways where people want to, you know, just kind of look at the history and the past through these rose-colored glasses. And it's like, there's a lot of ugly things and violent things that happened in the past of our country. And I, I think ignoring that or telling ourselves a story that it wasn't bad doesn't actually help us. And yet it seems to be what the brain does for some reason. I guess you go along with that approach as long as you can and mm -hmm. until you can. And I could not anymore when I was six, I kind of realized that my Peers' parents had completely different values from my parents, and that brought me into trouble with both parties. And then when I was 14, I learned my mother was an alcoholic, and had. And then I started to reinterpret my past as an, as more negative. Uh, and and up till that moment, I had been able to think of my past and my life, and and see only the good parts and the neutral parts, and kind of. And but only remember the negative parts when something negative would happen. So I rem if you think of your life experience as a sinoid um, shape, when I was on a high, I only would see the highs. When I was on a low, I would only see the lows. And it was I was about 25 when I realized this, mm -hmm. that I felt super bad on one day. And then I realized, and then I thought of all the bad things that I had, moments that I've had felt, which was really a nasty period. It's, it's really something you don't want to go through because somehow I just held at that until that moment, I had clung onto the idea that I came from a happy family, even though I knew better at some level, but it's just, um, yeah, it's just something you, you, you want to have a positive view of your family, your life, the people around you. Mm -hmm. And because somehow that's needed to, to progress. Um, and, and so from that moment onwards, there was a second layer of, of understanding the world that everything could also be more negative and, more, and there could be a hidden side to things. There could be a secret to, to people. There could be pain in people that I hadn't realized before and loneliness and despair. And so, yeah, um, I suppose in a way, you know, there's this saying that I wish, I wish you to have a, an easy life, but not too easy. And, uh, you know, or something like, I, I don't know how it goes exactly, but enough pain or problems to make you realize uh, how good the good things are and enough happiness to, I don't know, to know that happiness exists or something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a formulated more smoothly than I just did now. But um, in a way, I had the misfortune of having to having to kind of confront myself with uh, the harshness of even something as like my family life. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was 14, but um, in maybe in the long term, it was a good investment. 
because I think, you know, I've recently a friend of mine told me she felt she had been fooled by her parents into believing life was easy mm. and it was not, it was really hard. She was doing great. I mean, she was a single mom, uh, amazing career, um, amazing, inspiring person, but I never felt like that. I felt like I knew from an early age <laughs> things could be a struggle. Mm. And I suppose I had a disadvantage when I was younger, but maybe in the long term I have an advantage because I, I, uh, I'm open to pain and frustration and loneliness and despair in a way that maybe other people are not. And then I can actually have a conversation with it as opposed to just pushing it away. So I've already invested years of my life in realizing that life is also painful and evil and or whatever word you want to put there. Um, and I think people in the, in the, in the 10,000 candle march hadn't made that investment yet. So they were sort of, yeah, I envy them and I don't envy them. Yeah. <laughs> Once you take the red or the blue pill, I ever, always forget which one it is. You can just never go back. Mm-hmm. It's the red pill. I just watched uh, whatever the most recent Matrix movie was on the, my flight home from Amsterdam. It's the red pill that you can never un- unsee what you see. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I'm reading a book right now called the elephant in the brain. And it really looks at the fact that, and, and they explore why we do make up these stories and, and essentially our brain, some, some of it is almost protective. Some of it is survival. Some of it is just, we want to convince ourselves that we are right. Our perception is the correct perception. And so many times, I mean, we just, our, our brain ignores different information uh, and we have to be really intentional about seeking it out and seeking out those other potential truths, right? Because I can say, oh, I made this decision for these reasons and it's very clear to me and that's the only reasons why I made these decisions. And then someone else comes along and I was like, well, what about this? And you're like, no, no, no. But but maybe that's also, maybe there's other reasons, right? that we're not even conscious of. So I think it gets really interesting looking at it through that neurophysiological mm-hmm. perspective. I, I often feel like I'm very aware of what I don't know mm. uh, or what I might not know. And I think it really helps me taking tough decisions or navigating really complex situations. But it also does me a great disservice in just managing simple affairs because I can get stuck into things and then other people take a decision maybe they choose a more expensive product that is a slightly less good but they save themselves a few hours of making that choice and <laughs> in the end their approach is actually better yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, i think uh, recently i was in a training and somebody said uh, she was a psychologist she said that uh, there is so much information bombarding our brains every split second and we cannot process it all. So what in fact happens is that we only process that aspect that somehow fits the model we have of life and our surroundings. Mm. In a very practical sense, eh? because if you have Alzheimer and after you have Alzheimer, you got a new uh, water boiler in your kitchen. It, I think I've read articles that say that the person cannot actually see it. Because they have not constructed a mental model of that water boiler in the kitchen. So it can be right in front of them and they just don't see it. Because we only see 
So seeing is actually reconstructing, which for me is interesting because I'm, I have a background in architecture and, and we construct things all the time. So seeing is reconstructing. But I would go a step further than what science tells us. I would go, I would say that imagination is at the core of, of human life. And because, you know, we can focus on, on um, registering our surroundings and looking back at our past, but 50% uh, of our life is, is imagining things that haven't happened yet or might happen or could happen. Or, uh, you know, we, we, we are asked to make choices about the future. So we have to somehow have an imagination or have an image of what we will want to do in that future. Uh, when, when you ask a 12-year-old, which school do you, high school do you want to go to? Uh, so, um, so we make we create an image of ourselves, of our families, of our loved ones, of our school, of our work, of our country. All these things, uh, not for some because we're stupid or we're fanciful. No, we we need to do that uh, because it's it is demanded through life, and and this is a this is a creative act. This imagination, and it can never process all the, the the gazillions of data uh, gigabytes that bombard our brain all the time it cannot so we, it is in some form always a synth synthesis mm -hmm. of that it's it's simplified and why yeah and it and it has a bias towards uh, a positive future at least when we're young because everything seems to get better and more when you ask a three-year-old kid how old are you they'll say nearly four you know uh, <laughs> Nothing more the kid wants than to be older. Um, and, and that makes a lot of sense because things you, you're allowed to do more from your parents, your bigger kids can throw, walk faster, throw harder, faster, further, you know, they can speak smarter. So it's actually true. It's actually evidence-based that things are becoming better until you're, I don't know, 18 or 20 or whatever. And I was going to say, what, what age is it that that changes and switches? <laughs> Actually, when I was around 16, also with tennis, I noticed I was hardly, I was, I had been progressing very, very fast, very rapidly until that point. And around that period, I, I stopped progressing massively. And that was also kind of disappointing for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm curious to go back momentarily to what you were saying about being open to sadness, loss, grief. Sometimes we identify those as negative feelings. And mm. I also, I, I think that there's, there's value there and in allowing ourselves to go into, to feel those emotions. And I just this last week picked up a book that's called yeah. bittersweet by mm -hmm. Susan Cain. And she's really exploring more kind of like the melancholy side of life. And, and there's a lot of research that that supports this idea of, hey, if we if we acknowledge these emotions, if we can articulate our sadness rather than express it like anger, right? If we can admit, oh, I'm actually feeling sad or I'm feeling disappointed about this, we can move through it. And those emotions have less hold on us, less impact on us than if we try to suppress them. And because yeah. that, that tends to be um, often culturally what we do is like ah, suppress the negative, you know, like focus on the positive, at least in, in the Western cultures. Um, but I, I feel really strongly, and it kind of comes back to that point of, you know, we connect often through our pain points and it's not that we 
tell sad stories and just sit around and cry together. But I find like sharing the difficult, sometimes sad times, I can move through it and get to a place of peace, of joy, of happiness and connection versus just kind of trying to pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. So there's two thoughts that come to mind. First is to concur with what you just said. And Yuval Noah Harari, the famous uh, mm-hmm. historian, author of uh, Sapiens and, and, and other books, he says that we should not study history um, to, to learn from it in the sense that um, we know what might happen in the future, but we should study history in order to liberate ourselves from continuing what has happened in the past yes. to the future. So history is a form of liberation. And I think exactly the same thing goes for our feelings. While I believe uh, uh, we should emphasize the positive, I don't think we should ignore the negative. Um, that is a, a really a missed opportunity. And, and you know, it just comes by and uh, just bites us in the face. You know, it, it just, we cannot escape it. So let's acknowledge what there is. And, and interestingly, uh, I, I, my mother is, is probably the person I've loved most in my life, but she's also the person who made my life most difficult in many ways. Mm-hmm. And, and um, she passed away uh, two years ago, more or less, and uh, with Alzheimer uh, after she'd been sort of about seven years after, after she'd been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And it was the easiest um, loss imaginable, which sounds very strange. But I'll explain why. So, I mean, I spent three days on writing a speech, which was full of love, but also mentioned some of the bad things that happened um, that she'd done to me, but in a very loving way. And I was, which I was my intention. And I'm very happy I did. I achieved that. And I felt so good about say, sharing this with my family and the extended family and um, and some of my close friends. And afterwards, we sat together in an open patch in a forest. Um, my then girlfriend and three of my closest friends, who who I felt could understand this, uh, the, the 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 difficulties I've had with my mother in uh, because of their own biographies or interests, and um, and those were the most two therapeutical hours in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, it was a beautiful day. Uh, my then girlfriend had made really nice snacks, and in the evening we walked her dog, and it was a beautiful day. And I just felt so peaceful, and uh, everything had gone like it was a perfect day. Weirdly, and the thing is, um, I really needed to express that, and I had weirdly already started to imagine what I would say at her funeral about ten years earlier, which is strange, you know, because why would anybody start doing that? But I just felt. It was so baffling, the things that happened between me and my mother. How could you ever explain it to a person? Mm-hmm. It, it was a real challenge, and it felt like a worthwhile challenge trying to explain that mm-hmm. in a way that is not is very pure and authentic and not judgmental in any way. And um, But I think as a consequence of the things we've spoken about and not avoiding the sadness and the pain is that I already um, experienced the loss long before she died. Yeah. So it actually felt like a weight was lifted from my shoulders when she passed away. And uh, people have told me I look lighter. And uh, I think I felt better. And uh, not at her expense, I think. 
There's no, nobody made me suffer more in my life. It made me try harder to help somebody uh, and make somebody's life less difficult because her life was very difficult. Uh, life was very difficult for my mother. And, uh, you know, I, uh, and understandably so. I'm not, uh, I don't think she was foolish or anything in any way. Uh, you know? So, um, yeah, um, not shying away. I, I, I totally agree. Not shying away from that <clears throat> uh, helps us in the long run for sure. And it can help us make it connect also better to ourselves first and foremost, but also to other people. So true. I really appreciate you sharing that story and piece of the journey with your mom and really starting to process her loss before she passed away even. And I, I resonate for a, a variety of reasons, but I do, I just want to take a moment to, you know, reflect on you starting to think about what you might say at your mom's funeral 10 years before. And I personally, I don't think it's weird at all. I, I think that there is, I think that there is value in recognizing death for, for what it is like death is part of our lives. And we have kind of culturally learned to kind of be a little bit afraid of it and removed from it. And yet to me, it, it really, it helps being just aware that death is part of our journeys, that our relationships with all of our loved ones will end at some point in time. And maybe we know ahead of time because of a medical diagnosis, or maybe we don't know because of a unexpected accident, but just recognizing that these relationships do not last forever. For me, it helps me value and invest in those relationships and, um, and live more presently, if that makes sense. Well, I would even turn it around to make it more extreme. Where does the idea that things would stay the same forever even come from? Like I, I, I remember maybe when I was young, but also later you would either in the media, you would see some kind of story on a fictional story on TV or something, or, you would hear people speak when I was 15 that they would want to stay together with their boyfriend or girlfriend or best friend forever and nothing ever changes. And I, I've never felt that like that ever in my entire life. I just don't, I don't get it. Like when I was 15, I wanted things to continue to develop all the time. And if I had a crush on somebody, I definitely wanted to be them with them now. But what would I know about the future? Just... <laughs> Where does the idea even come from that everything should stay the same? I, I, I just, maybe some people are just, I don't know, by nature or by nurture, deeply conservative. And I'm just very progressive, but I, I don't get it. And when I also, when I look at my parents' lives, I would never want to change with them where they came from. And um, I mean, I remember hearing for the first time in my life, somebody writing that they were judging life, contemporary life by the by the the lens of their imagined uh, what they imagined their grandparents or great parents great grandparents would think of current life mm. and, and somebody uh, i think in the same text it was said that um conservatism is peer group pressure from dead people and and progressivism is peer group pressure from people yet to be born Interesting. and and for me i'm definitely the latter and I, I just don't even understand you know when i look at the past i look at you know, slavery, racism, bigotry, sexism, all these nonsensical wars and stuff. 
like I want to go have a life a lot better than the past. So why would I why would I want to keep things the same forever? I, I just I don't even get it. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing you reflect on that and the fact that you don't like you've never connected with that, that idea. For me, I can pinpoint it back to my upbringing and my and specifically my religious upbringing and being taught from a, you know, through that lens of Christianity that life goes on forever in the afterlife and that's actually the the ultimate goal and getting there and when it comes to relationships just being taught um and and from a very loving place of my mom saying people never change you marry somebody you better like them how they are cuz they never change and i i remember at some point along the way saying to my mom i don't think that's true <laughs> <laughs> And it's been funny ever since having those conversations because she'll still say it and she knows it's not true. And yet she'll still say it. Sometimes I'll be like, that's not true, mom. We all change a lot. <laughs> Again, two thoughts. I, I first, I was raised religiously. And uh, when I was about nine or 10 or eight, I decided I was an atheist or an agnostic because it just didn't make any sense to me. Okay. But I still had to go to church until I was 12 years old every week, which I hated. Wow. Uh, in the a few decades later, my, my mother also became an atheist. And my father still goes to church every week, but he doesn't actually believe in a hereafter anymore. But he, it's a, you know, it's a social tradition. And it's supposedly millions and millions of people are go to church in the world who don't actually believe anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and a second point. Oh, yeah. My father also, always used to tell me when I was young, you only make friends until you're 30. Oh. And always made me angry when he said that. It just... Like, why would anybody even want to think that? You know, it just it just sounds so destructive. But and um, I sometimes tease him with it because he proved himself completely wrong when he 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 became a pensioner. He actually made new friends, and uh, and now he has a new girlfriend. You know, <laughs> uh, he's gonna turn uh, eighty five in a few weeks. Her his girlfriend is two years older than him. She also lost her partner. Also. To Alzheimer, that's actually how they met in a self-help group. So my father is on a new you know, lease of life, and um, fortunately, people change. Yes, agreed, agreed. Uh, it's strange where these there's so many ideas people have. I think somebody told me when I got my uh, diploma in high school, somebody said they can never take that away from you again, and I'm like, what? Like, where does that thought even come from? Like. Who would want to take that away? Why would I just don't get it? The things people are afraid of. Like, well, it kind of comes back to that being fearful of uncertainty and wanting to think we have everything figured out. So I think it is some sort of protective. Um, in in essence, it's uh, people are trying. I wonder if people are trying to make life easier when they tell them themselves. It will never change. Things are the way they are, and they'll never change. It just comes from a very distrustful place, I think. Mm. Assumes that people will want to take things away from you, mm. and and finally something they cannot. Like and when and some of the the we've had a lot of populism and sort of right wing populism in the Netherlands in the last two decades, and and there's been a lot of talk about Black Pete, which is uh, mm-hmm. black faced uh, helper of Saint Nicholas. Uh, which is basically the same as uh, Father Christmas, uh, roughly, but a different date in December. Um, and and Black Pete has been called out for 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 a long time now, but especially in the last ten years, 
for being uh, very racist. And and I think everyone in the world knows that, and the Dutch were the last to realize it. But um, when when that you know manifested itself, people were saying, "But they've already taken away so much from us, and now this is well." And I'm like, "What have they taken away from you? Like, isn't life getting better in many ways? Yeah, not everything is getting better. The planet is deteriorating. You know, you can point out things, but you know, um, education, healthcare, sexism, racism." It seems that all these things are progressing. So I think some people live with the idea that that people are, and maybe this is just what what actually maybe this is evidence of uh, of of uh, what is the word um, privilege. Mm-hmm. Maybe people who are privileged feel that things are being taken away from them, and and well, they are. <laughs> so things that we should probably want to give up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also think too, going back to how the brain is wired up, we have, the world has progressed technology, modernization, globalization. We've changed so much in the last 200 years and our brain has not evolved at the pace that our world and technology has evolved. And I, I feel like we really need our brain to evolve on fast forward so we can catch up because we don't need to be so protective and, you know, tribalistic in our thinking. And yet we still have those tendencies. So uh, there has been talk in certain groups um, about death being a a disease that can be cured. And some people are working on, on immortality. Well, it's not immortality. It's a mortality in the sense that if, if you get in a car crash, you still die but you're just not uh, preventing people from dying from old age. Um, uh, so they were about this. 100 and 300 years old. But, you know, yeah, there can be this, some utopian and dystopian aspects in, in that both. But what I'm wondering is, I actually think it, it, for society, it's a good thing that people die because it's also a lot of biased and bigot, bigoted ideas pass, like go away. Imagine slaveholders were still alive now, a few hundred years old. I mean, also, would they even be able to speak to people? Because their language, the use of English or Dutch or whatever, would be so different. And their brain, you know, my father, his family, they got a car around 1958. And his grandmother was in the car. They took her for a drive. And they, they she forbade them to go faster than a horse could ride. Because... <laughs> were passing the car so fast it sh- she would become like nauseous or, and it seemed unhealthy and actually when the trains were invented in the 1840s people said that um, it's unnatural to go faster than a horse can drive and it, they were genuinely afraid that it would be unhealthy but then they realized that it's actually the 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 like the speeding up and slowing down is what, what can be unhealthy but actually fast speed in itself not anyway um but how are people who are born now and live 300 years, how are, gonna, how are they going to cope with the change of language, culture, customs, values, uh, technology? Um, it seems if, if there is a cost or class of people who are probably wealthy enough who can afford these therapies and live longer, they will have to be sort of isolated from large parts of society because they just cannot comprehend what's going on, uh, is my guess. Super interesting to think about. Super interesting. Yeah. 
you could have, that could be your target audience for your YouTube channel. And you could teach them how to deal with drastic change and develop new language and new perspectives. Well, the thing is when you grow older, I think, you know, you lose, you, 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 you learn to, to pick your battles and uh, some people do not all. And, and you can, you know, say, okay, um, I don't know about, you know, maybe you're a doctor and you just say, I'm going to help uh, people live a better life, but I don't know about climate change. It's not my expertise and I'll be dead before then. And I hope my children do a good job in helping. You, you can, you know, that's not an immoral standpoint of view, I would say. Um, um, but when you're 300 years old, you know, uh, yeah, you, you, you were, and you're wealthy and you maybe still have a century to go. You were, you were, probably choose your community very consciously uh, and who to up with and but in a way that's also about making life less difficult or or which parts of reality do you want to confront yourself with and which not i mean do i read all articles in the newspaper all the time do i you know there i'm sure there are documentaries about slavery in the congo and in you know in, in brazil and do i want to watch them well not all the time for sure so we want to sort of lull ourselves a bit to sleep also. Uh, and we need some escapism. We cannot, we cannot confront the harshness of life all the time. Yeah. But I think by then, that, that category of people would be become very deliberate in, in choosing what they, what they want to focus on and not, because they could just not follow any things anymore. Yeah. 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 Super interesting to think about. Chris, this conversation has taken us in many, many different directions. And I am curious, we didn't even get to touch on, you have a documentary called Agoraphobia. I didn't even get to ask you about that. Um, so we should have you come back for part two, because I have oh, a wow. feeling that there's more stories. And I'm curious if if you, if you're willing to share um, your intent to start a YouTube channel, what are your thoughts there? What, what would you like to be sharing about so I actually years ago, about six, seven years ago, I was offered a, a Sex in the City column in a local online magazine uh, about my dating life because I had started online dating. And I found that I, my stories were so interesting and they were so counter to what um, people talked about in media. Because, for example, I dated one of my first dates was with a girl with a headscarf. And, and what happened between us was really not what you would think a young Muslim you know, would do. So um, there's so many. So one of the things I would like to talk about is just my experiences in online dating, but also, you know, uh, uh, finding my, my purpose in, in, in my work or how, how did I, I've studied at four universities, I believe. Um, I've reinvented myself career-wise. Like how did that help happen? And what, how did I figure out what I like to do and what gives me energy and what I'm good at and all those things? There's so many questions I've asked myself in life and reflected upon. And I think I reflect probably more than most. And I try to articulate that in ways that people sometimes say it resonates with them. So I would like to share stories of my life, but maybe also ask people questions, like ask them to ask me questions about, you know, to reflect on issues they find themselves confronted with. So I suppose I would like to ask universal questions and give my particular subjective answer to it in a way that gives people a reference to think, to compare their own trajectory with and their thoughts with. I like it. Well, I, I for one, I'm looking forward to you starting your YouTube channel. Thank you. 
And uh, before we started recording this conversation, you had articulated a hope that you wouldn't bore yourself. And so I just want to check in with you. you. Did you bore yourself during this conversation or did you find it intriguing? Sometimes I have conversations which people ask me interesting questions and I answer them and they think it's really interesting, but I'm, I'm super bored with myself because I feel like I'm just saying things that I've said already a hundred times before. And, and then it's a very um, mismatched conversation because they're actually having a great time and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was not the case. I think my ideal would have been that I learned something new. I'm not sure if I have, but I've definitely, it's definitely gone into direction I had not expected. Well, actually the whole idea about these sort of undead, amortal people, I'd never thought about, you know, their perspective on life and catching up or not being able to catch up anymore. So that that is definitely a new thought I'd never thought uh, before. So yeah, we succeeded in both. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being willing to connect and explore and just have this conversation and discover discover the path it was going to take. We didn't have a well-structured plan and I have not been bored and I am very grateful to hear that you have not been bored as well. It's been a great pleasure to be on your uh, podcast, Lisa. Thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, next times or next time. Sounds great.